know, you know how um, all believers are at a different place with regard to spiritual depth and maturity and, and wisdom? Would you like to know who the believers in our fellowship are who have the greatest depth of wisdom and understanding? Look over in that direction. All the people that were so quick to grab the chairs in the shade over there. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we should have a fundraiser. Think how much money we could raise for the church if we charge for those chairs in the shade over there next, next Sunday. Well, if you're new with us here at Calvary Chapel, the philosophy of ministry at the Calvary Chapels is take God's people through the Bible. That's pretty much it. That's the philosophy of ministry. In my 38 years now as pastor of this church, we have studied our way through the entire Old Testament twice, and this is our third time through the New Testament. This is what we believe as to how God's people can grow deep in their faith and close to the Lord in their walk and relationship with Him. The only way we can really get to know the mind and the heart of God is just going through His Word. And we are currently studying our way through the book of Acts. If you would like to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 13. Reading verses 13 to 44. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up. Motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the word of the salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, 
fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in the Psalms, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Take heed, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, scoffers, marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meaning of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. So this chapter begins with believers gathered together in the city of Antioch, which was a large city in Syria. And Paul and Barnabas were there. It says there were prophets and teachers who were there. And it says they were ministering to the Lord with prayer and fasting. I love that. Have you ever thought about that phrase, ministering to the Lord? That, that thrills my heart. It challenges me. It excites me. Because the Lord is ministering to me all the time. The Lord is ministering to you, to us, all the time. 24-7. When we're down, when we're hurting, he's ministering comfort. When we're afraid, he's reminding us of his love and his promises and ministering peace to our hearts. He's always watching over us and he's taking care of us and protecting us and providing for us. He's constantly ministering to us. Isn't it wonderful that every once in a while we can take a little time to minister to the Lord? Whenever we spend time with the Lord, whether it's in our personal devotional life or here on a Sunday or a Wednesday, let's keep in mind an important part of the reason we're here is to minister to the Lord. Oh, we come with expectancy, absolutely. We come with expectancy. The Lord's going to speak to me personally through his word. I need to drink of the living water. The Lord is going to quench the thirst of my soul and fill me up and revive me. Yes, we come with expectancy. The Lord is here. He will minister to us. But let's not forget an important part of the reason why we come together to worship the Lord 
is to minister to him. That's why we don't want to uh, have our minds wandering during worship service. Because if we're really expressing genuine gratitude and love in our worship and in our prayers, we're filling our Lord's heart with joy. The one who suffered and died on the cross for us, we have the ability to fill his heart with joy. So they were ministering to the Lord through prayer and fasting. Remember, fasting was intended to be a part of the spiritual lives of the church. Remember, they asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? And he said, well, it's not appropriate that the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's here, but when the bridegroom is taken away, they will fast. So he made it very clear, fasting will be a part of the lives of the followers of Jesus. Why is that? It's because when we are denying ourselves food, we are practicing denying the urges and desires of the flesh. So when we are fasting and denying the flesh, we are more in the spirit. The less we give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh, the more we give ourselves over to the leading of the Spirit, the more we're filled with the Spirit, the more we're led with the Spirit. When we're fasting, we're more in tune with God to hear His voice and know the leading of His Spirit. And that's exactly what happened there in the church in Antioch. They're ministering to the Lord through prayer and fasting. And the Lord speaks to them. The Holy Spirit speaks to them. Probably... A word of prophecy, there were prophets there, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work that I have called them. So this is the beginning. It came out of a time of prayer and fasting. The beginning of Paul's incredible missionary journeys, initially with Barnabas and then later with Silas. So we're picking up in his first missionary journey uh, in, in verse 14, when they arrive at another city, which is also called Antioch, only it's a different Antioch. The first one is in Syria. This one is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, up in the mountainous region, higher elevation. And it was Paul's practice to go to the synagogue every Saturday to worship the Lord. Now, why would that be? If Paul is now a Christian, why would he go to the Jewish synagogue every Saturday to worship God? Two reasons. First of all, because he's still Jewish. You don't renounce Judaism to become a Christian. Paul still believed every word of the Old Testament. He simply believed that all the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the first coming of the Messiah have been fulfilled so he's still, Jude, he's still a Jew. He hasn't renounced Judaism. He simply believes our Messiah has come. Jesus is our Messiah. He's a completed Jew. So he has every reason to go worship with his Jewish brethren. But secondly, he knew the custom in the synagogue. Every week there was the reading of the law and the prophets. There was a schedule for the uh, a reading schedule for the whole year. You could tell what the date was by what passage was being read. But after the reading of the uh, law and the prophets, an invitation would be e extended to anyone who wanted to speak, give a word of exhortation or give a word of teaching. And the apostle Paul always took advantage of that opportunity, accepted the invitation, and he stands and he begins to speak and he begins to preach. And this is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. And what's interesting is he gives him a history lesson. 
Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Stephen did. When Stephen was being stoned, Paul was there. He was still known as Saul of Tarsus, but he was there as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, and giving his approval for the stoning of Stephen. So he heard Stephen's message. And what did Stephen do? He gave them a history lesson, and he showed them Christ in the Old Testament. He showed them pictures of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. And that must have really impacted the heart of Saul of Tarsus because now when he finally gets a chance to preach, that's what he does. Now, at the time, it might have seemed like it was a waste of time. Stephen, you're wasting your words. You're clearly not getting through to that guy. You're clearly not connecting with him. You're wasting your time. But it turns out that he was quoting scripture after scripture. And the scripture is a sharp two-edged sword that pierces the heart and always accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it, which is to bring conviction. It always brings conviction. To convict is to convince. And we know Paul was under great conviction because he went from being opposed to Christianity to being enraged against Christianity. And sometimes the people who are the most hostile toward Christianity are the ones who are under the most conviction. So never think you're wasting your time when you're telling people anything about what God says in his word. When you're sharing scripture, telling anybody about the Bible, don't go away thinking, well, that was a waste of time. Sure didn't connect with them. No. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and bringing forth seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so is the word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. So even if there's no response or a hostile response, we walk away with a smile in our heart because we know they've been pierced with that sharp two-edged sword. And there is conviction because the spirit of a human being bears witness with the spirit of truth. The spirit of man always bears witness with the spirit of truth. That means deep down inside, they know that what you're saying is the truth. And so you can walk away with a smile on your heart, knowing that maybe some, sometime later down the road, God will come along and water the seed that you just planted like he did with Saul of Tarsus. And then it's going to grow and it's going to produce the fruit of saving faith. So I think Paul was really impacted by what Stephen did in rehearsing the history of Israel and quoting scripture after scripture after scripture, piercing his heart. And so that's what Paul does. He just goes into this history lesson. He begins with re reminding them of their time as slaves in Egypt. That would remind them of how God, with an uplifted arm, delivered them and brought them out and set them free from bondage. Paul is wanting them to see these beautiful portrayals of the gospel in the Old Testament. Because it isn't that what happened to us? When we heard the gospel, when the light of truth began to shine upon us and we believed and we received, it took nothing less than the power of Almighty God to free those slaves from Egypt. Man, he had to send those plagues one after another after another until Pharaoh finally caved in and, and let them go. 
And it took nothing less than the power of Almighty God, the power that raised Christ from the dead to deliver us and set us free when we were in bondage to sin. It took nothing less than the power of Almighty God to break the chains that bound us and to set us free. And so then he reminds them of their journey through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The the period of history between Egypt and the land of Canaan. And what does it say? Paul's reminding them of how God put up with them in the wilderness. He had to put up with them. Because they were constantly grumbling and complaining about what they didn't like. They couldn't be thankful for the miraculous ways God was taking care of them and providing for them. They could only grumble and complain about what they didn't have. It often turned into rebellion. Rebellion against Moses, rebellion against God. So for God to continue to bless them and provide for them, I mean, water miraculously came out of the rock, became a stream through the desert where there was no water and they would have died manna that came down from heaven when there was no food for two million people. They didn't deserve his constant, loving, tender care. He put up with them. They were constantly testing his patience. And I love that reminder to us today from their history. Because I know God has put up with me, oh my goodness, over the years, for him to continue to love me. So many times having such a raunchy, raunchy attitude that totally dishonors him. So many times I can't even count when the wrong words come out of my mouth, the wrong actions that dishonor him and terrible witness for him. How in the world did he just not wipe them out in the wilderness and start over with Moses' descendants? How in the world does he not just say, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm fed up with you, brat? How does he keep on blessing me and my family and blessing my ministry? He proves his love for us, doesn't he? By being patient with us. What's the first word of the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13? Patient. Love is patient. That's how God demonstrates his love for me. He continues to take care of me and bless me. When I'm so unworthy and when I'm so undeserving. So, if you're not showing patience to your spouse, stop saying you love them. You don't have the right to say you love them until you are patient with them. It just means you don't understand what love is. You think it's some feeling. Real love, God's love, is demonstrated in patience. And if you're not patient with your children, stop saying you love them. You have a misguided understanding of what love is. It is when you are showing patience with your children. It's when you're showing patience with one another, brothers and sisters who are messing up, saying the wrong thing, hurting your feelings or offending you or whatever. And when you're showing patience, now you're walking in love. So he reminds them there's something to learn from history if we would only learn from history. And then... um, He reminds them of how they finally got through the wilderness and they made it into the promised land. But they had to follow Joshua and they had to be willing to fight these battles against the Canaanites because the Canaanites still had strongholds in the land. They're not going to be able to possess the land and enjoy the abundance of the land of Canaan unless they drive out the enemy. Can you not see this beautiful 
portrayal of the gospel in the Old Testament because after we're saved, we're delivered from Egypt, we're delivered from bondage to sin, we're born again. We have eternal life, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have abundant life. We're going to have to be willing to follow our Joshua into battle because the enemy, our spiritual enemy, still has some strongholds in our hearts. And if I don't get that victory over the lust in my heart, I'm not going to have the abundant life. If I don't get that victory over greed, if I don't get that victory over selfishness, I'm not going to have the abundant life. If I don't get that victory over anger or bitterness, I'm never going to have the abundant life in Christ. Beautiful picture. Let's take up the weapons of warfare. Follow Jesus into this battle. And he'll give us victory after victory after victory over the flesh and the world and the evil one until we are enjoying the abundant life in Christ. Well, then he goes on to the next segment of their history, which was the period of the judges. God was ruling and reigning over his people through men and women that he would raise up and anoint them with the Spirit to judge Israel. So when there were conflicts and disputes, they would come to the judges, and the judges would rental verdicts and settle them. But what they're being reminded of, because they all knew the book of Judges, was the pattern of the people to continue backsliding. They would be walking with the Lord, they'd be blessed, their lives were good, then they would backslide, they would be back in sexual immorality and idolatry and the godlessness of the, the nations. And they wouldn't respond to the warnings of God through the prophets. And so God would chasten them by sending their enemies upon them to conquer them and to um, enslave them again. And finally, in the brutality of that kind of oppression, they repented. And they came back to God. We're sorry. Oh, Lord, we want to walk with you. Forgive us and deliver us. And every time he would, every time he would, He asked us to forgive each other 70 times 7, right? He's not going to ask us to do something he's not willing to do. And so every time he would forgive them, they'd get walking with the Lord and things would be good again. Then they'd backslide again. In the book of Judges, we see the pattern over and over again. Oh, why don't they learn? Why don't we learn? We see that same pattern in the lives of so many believers, don't we? They're walking with the Lord. God's blessing. Things are good in their life. And then it's not long before they're backslidden back living their old worldly lifestyle again. And they come under bondage again to those same sins. And when they're beaten down and spiritually oppressed and miserable, they cry out to God. They return to the Lord. Forgive me. And he always does. And he delivers them again. And they begin walking with the Lord. And their lives get good again. And then what do they do? They backslide. You see the pattern of the book of Judges over and over if we would only learn from history. And then he reminds them of the part of their history where they got tired of the period of the judges. And they said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And Samuel was grieved in his heart, but God said, don't be grieved, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as being king over them. Why? Because they wanted to be like the world. And that brought trouble to the nation of Israel Monarchy is a good system of government if the monarch is wise and benevolent. Christ will one day rule and reign over the earth. It'll be wonderful. But so many times the king is corrupt. So many of the times the king is wicked. And their lives are good. And they go from bad to worse. And the people were miserable because they wanted to be like the world. Hopefully we can learn from history. Don't give in to the temptation to want to be like the world because that leads to believing 
in worldly values, temporal values, thinking that the things of this world and the pleasures of this world is what I need to satisfy me, to fulfill me, and to make me happy. And it doesn't. The Lord said to his people, you have forsaken the fountain of living water. And you've hewn out for yourself cisterns that are broken and cracked and can hold no water. That's why we don't want to be like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you can continually drink of the living water. The thirst of the soul will be quenched by the Holy Spirit. So then he moves from... um, them wanting a king to the first king, which was King Saul. They knew the story. They knew the history. If they would only learn from it, Saul was stubborn. Saul was disobedient. Saul was rebellious, and it led to his death. The wages of sin is death. They would be reminded of the prophet Samuel's rebuke to Saul. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Insubordination is as idolatry. So when we're stubborn and we're just being disobedient, rebellious toward the Lord in the way that we're living our lives, we might as well be involved in witchcraft. We might as well be involved in Satanism. We are opening the door for demonic spirits within our lives. Oh, if you could only learn from your history, from those who went before you, the mistakes of King Saul. And then he jumps right to King David. What a contrast. God himself testified of David. This is a man after my heart. Oh, that doesn't mean David was perfect. We know the story. He was far from perfect. But what a passion he had for God. And in the depths of his heart, he wanted to please God and live for God and love God. That's why he was a man after God's heart. And we can have lives that are just as blessed as David. We can be men and women after God's heart, even though we too are far from perfect. If we have that same passion for God, that depth of love for God, God, I love you so much, I want to live for you. Each and every day, I want to serve you. I want my life to be an influence. David was a godly man. He had a godly influence upon the whole nation. And when that is the passion of our heart, to have an influence for godliness in this evil, wicked generation, our lives will be as blessed as David's was. Well, then he goes from David to the son of David, which is the Messiah. God fulfilled his promise from the offspring of David to bring forth a Savior. Then he goes from there to recent history of John the Baptist. They all knew John the Baptist. All the people loved John the Baptist and knew that he was a great prophet of God. Not the religious leaders, John the Baptist confronted them with their sin and hypocrisy. So they hated him because they didn't want to repent of their sin. But all of the common people loved John and revered him as a great prophet. Remember what Jesus said of John? Among those born of women, there have arisen none greater than John. But what is the testimony of John concerning this man Jesus? The thong of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then he reminds them, 
of all the prophets. All the prophets have said concerning the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Savior, the Messiah who would, who would come into the world. You guys love the prophets, Paul was saying to them. You read the prophets every Sabbath day. And now you have fulfilled the prophets by condemning the Messiah and putting them to death. You read the prophets, you love the prophets, and yet you fulfill the prophecies that said he would be rejected and crucified by his own people. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the prophecy of Peter regarding the last days. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was since the beginning of time. And so the more I hear people mocking the second coming of Christ, the more excited I get. Because the more they're mocking, the closer it is. Do you not see that you are fulfilling the very prophecies you're mocking? And that's what was happening with the people in Jesus' day. He goes right from there to the resurrection. Heavy emphasis on the resurrection, verses 30 through 36. Why? Because if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. It is the resurrection that validates the message of the cross. How do we know that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sins? How do we know that? How do we know he wasn't a criminal paying for his own crimes? Or how do we know he wasn't a martyr? Thousands of martyrs have been willing to die throughout the centuries for something they truly believed in. How do we know Jesus wasn't one of those? The resurrection proves it. Because Christ lives, we know this life is not all there is. Death in the grave is not the end. Because he lives, we too shall live. And Paul reminds them of the prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah through David, Psalm 16, verse 10. Thou wilt not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. That means when the body is buried, it undergoes decay. Thou wilt not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. His body won't decay in the grave like everyone else. Why? Because he won't be there very long because God is going to raise him from the dead. So he goes from the resurrection to the conclusion of his message. Through him, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you. So that's what's going on today, 2,000 years later. This day, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you. It's the message of the gospel. You don't have to pay for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for you that you might live. And through him we are freed from all things that the law could not free us from. What can the law not free us from? Guilt, condemnation, fear, the fear of judgment day, the fear of the wrath of God. I've broken God's laws. I deserve to be judged and punished. I don't want to die. I don't want that day to come. I'm going to be suffering the torment of hell forever. The law can't set us free from guilt and fear of judgment. But grace can. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus can. When you put your faith in Christ, you realize you have a relationship with God now based on grace, not based on the works of the law. And now you can rejoice. Now you can have the joy of your Lord in your heart all the time. And that's why he said, as, they, as they're dispersing at the end of this message, he urges them, continue in the grace of God. If you want to continue in the joy of the Lord, continue in the grace of God. Don't slip back into a legalistic relationship with God. There's too much pressure. You're trying so hard to be accepted by God through your, your obedience and your own righteousness. And it's crushing you because you know how often you fail until you finally give up. God's never going to accept me. I'm not even going to... I don't even have the hope of heaven anymore. You lose your joy. Never go back to that legalistic relationship with God. You continue in the grace of the Lord. He's with you. He loves you. He accepts you now. He accepts you into his kingdom. You've already passed from judgment into life because of the grace of God. But you know, that's the one thing these people didn't do. They didn't continue in the grace of God. Pisidian Antioch is in the region of Galatia. What did Paul say in his letter to the Galatians? Who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This one thing I would know of you. Did you receive the Spirit through the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? Are you really going to say, I'm glad for the blood of Jesus to wipe out my past sins, but the rest of the way, I'll earn it. You'll be crushed by the weight of the burden of the law. Continue in the grace of God. You were running well. Who hindered you from following the truth? You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. May that never be said about any one of us. The message of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so wonderful that the people were sharing with their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers that week about this good news. You can be forgiven. Heaven is a free gift. You don't have to earn it or deserve it. And it was such wonderful news. Guess what? The whole city turned out the next Saturday to hear more of this good news of God's love and grace. And if that's what we're doing, if we're talking to people about Jesus, and if what they're hearing is not condemning, if what they're hearing is in their ears really, really good news, and we're just talking to people about Jesus, friends, neighbors, co-workers, what wonderful good news, the grace of the Lord Jesus, it won't be long before that sanctuary there won't be big enough, even if we have three services. It wouldn't be long before this whole parking lot wouldn't be big enough for our services. It won't be long before the whole city would be coming out to hear this wonderful good news news. The grace of God. You don't ever have to worry about death. What's going to happen to you when you die? Where are you going to spend eternity? That fear is gone forever the moment you receive the grace of God by receiving Christ as your Savior. One man decided the words he wanted engraved on his tombstone were, life is short, eternity is forever. And the reason was he wanted everybody who's walking through that graveyard 
to realize that every single headstone represents a soul. Every single gravestone represents an eternal soul. Some of them are in heaven. Some of them are in hell. But they all are remembering the time in their life when they heard the truth of God's word, the truth of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the afterlife, there's consciousness and there's memory. Remember the rich man in Hades in torment? He said, oh, Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. They're still alive on the earth. I don't want them to end up here. There's consciousness and there's memory. Every gravestone represents one soul. Many of those souls are celebrating forever their decision to receive the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The moment they received it, they began celebrating. They celebrated the rest of their life here. They'll be celebrating through eternity. But all the others are remembering when they heard the word of God, they were convicted by it. Deep down inside, they knew it was true, but they didn't want to give up their sinful lifestyle, so they rejected it, and they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. You don't have to be that soul. Receive the grace of God, and then continue in the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray.